conversations uh, in the university and beyond. Everyone here tonight came because all of us share an abiding and dire concern for the condition of our planet. All of us who are here believe that we human beings have the power to act and I trust we also believe that we are obligated to do so. Our sense of agency arises out of a deep practiced faith. It's a faith in science. I hope and I trust that I can speak for all of us whether or not we are situated within uh, traditional religious streams when I affirm that our religious traditions teach us the humility to know that there are questions that science must answer and which theology has only a secondary voice. There is a Muslim tale that comes out of the Hadith tradition recounting how Muhammad once, was once asked to rule on a question concerning a date palm and Muhammad replied, what do I know about raising dates? You better ask a farmer. Many of us here are people of faith in those practiced story traditions. Um, we do believe in the validity and the necessity of empirical experience. So we believe that we have agency to change our world through empirical knowledge. That's what science teaches. We also believe that we have an obligation to do so. We attest, many of us, that that sense of obligation comes from a mysterious place an a priori sense, a revelation or state of enlightenment that in some way precedes the specifics of our experience in the world. In my own tradition, I'd say this sense comes through a dogma teaching that all of the created world bears God's holiness. And so to mar this creation is to insult the work of the creator. Not all who sit on this panel, of course, embrace the kind of dualistic language that I'm using, creator, created. But that's not the point. We're not here to quibble about who's more right, the dualists or the monists, and we're not here to fight about who has the most eco-friendly cosmology or practice. What we're here to do is to help one another and to help you articulate a collective and multifaceted vision of why we need to make our home, this earth, more livable. I'm happy to present Emily Wilson-Hauger, our coordinator, who will introduce the sponsors and the speakers. Hello, my name is Emily Wilson Hogger. Welcome to Duke Faith Council's third annual dialogue. I'm the program coordinator of the Faith Council, as Michael told you. Our co sponsors, and we have many of them this year, are listed in the pamphlets that you picked up, hopefully, at the top of the stairs. If you didn't get one, make sure you do before you leave. And we're very thankful for them for supporting interfaith initiatives on campus and in the community. Following the panel, the panelists will move to separate rooms in the building, and you are free to join one of them for a smaller, more informal conversation. I will announce room assignments following the question and answer period tonight. The subject tonight, Saving the Earth, What Can Faith Traditions Teach Us About the Environment? We are delighted to have a distinguished panel to lead our discussions. Our Buddhist representative is Dr. Stephanie Kaza. 
Dr. Kaza is Professor of Environmental Studies at the University of Vermont in Burlington, where she chairs the Environmental Council. Dr. Kaza's latest book is entitled Hooked, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume. Our Hindu representative is Dr. Umesh Gulati. Dr. Gulati is Professor Emeritus of Economics, International Business, and Cross-Cultural Studies at East Carolina University. Dr. Gulati has made it his mission to create understanding between different cultures and religions in the state of North Carolina. Our Christian representative is Dr. Norman Wurzba. Dr. Wurzba is Research Professor of Theology, Ecology, and Rural Life right here at Duke Divinity School. He focuses on understanding and promoting practices that will equip rural church communities to be more faithful and responsible members of creation. Our Muslim representative is Dr. Syed Hossein Nasser. Born in Tehran, Dr. Nasser is Professor of Islamic Studies at George Washington University in DC. Dr. Nasser has written not only on various aspects of Islamic studies, but also on the philosophical and religious dimensions of the environmental crisis. Our Jewish representative, who's running a little bit late, is Rabbi Dr. Arthur Waskow. Dr. Waskow is one of the co-creators and leaders of the Jewish Renewal Movement. He is the founder and director of the Shalom Center in Philadelphia, where he, is, where he involves religious communities in addressing personal and household addiction to oil and the economic structures that feed and intensify this addiction. So he'll be joining us very soon. Our moderator for the evening is Dr. Sam Wells, who many of you might know, Dean of Duke University Chapel and Research Professor of Christian Ethics at Duke Divinity School. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished panelists for the evening. Well, I'm going to uh, address our distinguished panelists first of all as uh, teachers, and I'm going to start with Dr. Galati from the Hindu tradition. Tell us uh, for 10 minutes, they've got 10 minutes each, uh, to, for the first question, tell us for 10 minutes about what Hinduism teaches us about the environment. Thank you very much. I'm really very much excited and honored to be here among uh, so many distinguished uh, people from Vermont and uh, Washington and also from our Duke University. Uh, it is said in, uh, in, um, among the Hindus that if you are among, if you want to go to, to the kingdom of God, then uh, you must uh, have a company of holy people. And uh, there could not be holier people than these. <laughs> so I have uh, already, um, you know, very close to going to the kingdom of God. <laughs> Namaste. Namaste. I am deliberately using the traditional Indian or Hindu way of greeting you all. For that is the best way for me to begin how Hinduism looks upon human beings and other objects of nature. People from all religious traditions use this namaste symbol while offering prayers to their chosen deity. 
But in Hinduism, and in fact in all religions that have originated from India, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism, this symbol is used to greet people. Greeting people with folded hands signifies that the Hindus acknowledge that they are potentially divine, and by doing so, they manifest their own divinity as well. In fact, Hinduism believes that everything in nature, not just human beings, is divine, and the whole creation is sacred. Thus, spiritually speaking, all objects in nature are born equal, and there is unity in diversity. That is why I call Hinduism as the embodiment of spiritual democracy. Mahatma Gandhi was once asked by an American professor in comparative theology to tell her in nutshell the chief value of Hinduism. Gandhi replied that the chief value of Hinduism lies in holding that all life, not just human beings, but all sentient beings <clears throat> is one. That is, all life is coming from the one universal source. He further asserted that in principle, it was not given to humans to dominate or exploit nature, but cooperate with it for aiding and enhancing our mutual welfare. The best way to do so, according to Gandhi, would be to limit our wants. <coughs> Excuse me. This democratic ethos of Hinduism is well grounded in Vedanta philosophy. Philosophy in Sanskrit is called darshan, which means seeing or realizing. Unlike Western philosophy, Indian philosophy is a truth-seeking discipline which does not limit itself to merely discursive reasoning, but more importantly, depends on direct perception and intuitive realization. Thus, understood, Vedanta asserts that each soul is potentially divine, and the goal of human life is to realize that divinity within. I believe Christ meant the same thing when he said, seek thee, the, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and other things will be added unto you. Vedanta calls God as Brahman or Ishwar, which is both transcendent and immanent and pervades everything. Please note that I will be using words Vedanta and Hinduism interchangeably. Ishwar, immanent, in you and me, is called the self or soul. Vedanta also asserts that the essence of everything, including human beings, is this self, which is pure, perfect, and immortal. The death is of the body, not of the soul. While our senses and minds find differences in nature, humans, animals, plants, rivers, mountains, etc., through spiritual disciplines and self-knowledge, we can become awakened to unity behind diversity. That unity, of course, is Brahman or Ishwar. The Upanishads, the later parts of the Vedas, describe Brahman or Ishwar as follows. Quote, that from which all these entities and beings are born, that in which being born they live, that unto which in the end they enter, know that that is Brahman. Thus we see that Brahman is the source, sustenance, and the final destiny of all the entities of this universe. Another Upanishad describes Brahman as of the nature of existence, 
consciousness, and bliss absolute. These are not the attributes of Brahman, but are its very essence. Imagine that this whole universe, uh, uh, this whole creation, as an ocean of infinite water, whose properties are existence, consciousness, and bliss absolute. Imagine also that all of us and other creatures, including the earth and mountains, are the waves. Some are small waves, others are big. Some are just storms, while others are hurricanes. But regardless of the heights and ferocity of the waves, all are nothing but water. So if there were no calmly ocean Ishwar behind these waves, there would be no waves, storms, or hurricanes at all. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that the essence of all objects of nature, including every one of us, is the self, Brahman or Ishwar. The Hindus say that Ishwar did not create this universe out of nothing on a certain day. Rather, the Hindu view is that God himself has become the world with all the beings and other objects of nature. Hindu sages have enjoined that the goal of every human being is to realize the kingdom of God within and see that the self or the soul in me is the same soul in all. To wit, I am in all and all are in me. Out of ignorance, we have forgotten our true essence and have identified ourselves with our body-mind complexes. All conflicts, interpersonal, interreligious, interracial, and also international, which have brought so much misery and sufferings to humanity and, all created the, and have created also the environmental crisis, are the result of this false identification with our names, forms, professions, religions, etc. So we need to overcome this false identification with our names, uh, false identification, and realize what we really are. This realization will make us see that you and I are not we. You and I are one. Only through self, such self-knowledge can we understand Christ's second commandment, which is, quote, love thy neighbor as thyself. As a 19th century German Vedantist Paul Dusan said, I will love my neighbor as myself because I am, I am my neighbor. By the same token, a Hindu asserts that I should work to protect environment not because God has appointed me a steward of nature. And if I turn out to be a good steward, I will have a place in the heaven or paradise on the judgment day. The Hindu view is that I should protect the environment because by doing so, I will protect myself, here and now. This religion of oneness, as I like to describe Vedanta, and as I have outlined it above, has permeated the culture and religions, uh, religious rites of Hindus from the Vedic times nearly 500 years ago. Uh, I have only two minutes. <laughs> the Hindus have prayed for peace and harmony, not only between man and man, or man or other forms of life, or man or the earth, but also between the earth and the other primordial elements of cosmos, 
We can see this indicated by the following peace mantra that is recited at the end of all sacred Hindu rites, which goes by in the English translation. To the heavens be peace, to the sky and the earth be peace, to the waters be peace, to plants and all tree be, uh, trees be peace, uh, uh, to the gods be peace, to all men be peace, Om, peace, peace, peace be unto all. From this peace mantra, um, that is to, um, uh, it is clear that the Hindus, earth is not an object for exploitation, but a mother for adoration. In Sanskrit, it is called Dharti Ma, Mother Earth, or Bhumi Devi, or Goddess Earth. Uh, this, uh, in fact, Vedas say that the whole creation with its varied beings is like a big family in which all the members of the family are interrelated and interconnected. Paralleling the groundbreaking cer ceremony in the West, the tradition of worshipping the goddess Earth called Bhumi Puja or worshipping uh, worship of the Mother Earth being, before being, uh, using it for any um, way prevails in India and also wherever the Hindus live, including Morrisville, North Carolina, where we have a big uh, Hindu temple. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I, we're, uh, Dr. Wasco is now with us, so, so while he settles in, uh, we're going to keep going uh, along the table, uh, and Dr. Carls is going to speak from the Buddhist tradition. Well, thank you again for welcoming uh, me here, and it's a treat uh, particularly to come to a state where there are flowers. <laughs> because in Vermont, we are just seeing the first two inches of the crocus greens. So I had the pleasure of walking around in the Doris Duke Garden for a few minutes before dinner, and it really, really warmed my heart. You have a very beautiful place here to enjoy nature. So the first thing I need to say to you is that there is no single Buddhist view of nature. We need to just start right there. The Indian view is different from the Japanese view, is different from the Chinese view. So you should also know uh, that my particular view, which I'm, uh, of course, influenced by, is Soto Zen, that my own practice is in the Japanese tradition, and I studied with uh, the, in the San Francisco Zen Center group under um, the lineage of Suzuki Roshi, and my teacher was Kobenchino Odagawa. And then that was brought up to a kind of modern environmental concerns, uh, taking a number of retreats with Thich Nhat Hanh and training with Joanna Macy. So uh, marrying that in with my environmental studies teaching and background in activism, it's a kind of unusual blend. And I will say that the whole field of uh, Buddhism and ecology is a, a really quite a small field. So uh, there are not a lot of us out there thinking about this. Um, Buddhism has been applied in this country to many other socially engaged endeavors, hospice work, prison work, um, gardening, but uh, not the overall environment so much. You would have a hard time getting people in Washington, D.C. working in the EPA or at NRDC or at NOAA to self-identify as Buddhists. All that being said, I think Buddhism has a lot to contribute, a lot to offer, and particularly in interfaith dialogue. It's very rich to learn from the other faiths and to see how, how we understand our own faith in that context. So um, given this is such a recent field, in fact, the first conference that I attended uh, was in 1990, where Buddhists were invited to lead workshops and be on panels and so on. So we're not even at 20 years here. There's just a handful of books out there. So I'll give you a few of the key points that come out over and over in Buddhism. Um, first, the universe, the view of the universe the emphasis is not on the creation. There's no creator God in Buddhism. 
So the emphasis is more on the ongoing dynamic uh, life-giving uh, force that uh, is the matrix for all creativity, for all life, for all activity. Uh, not so much worry about when it all came into being, but just be present with how it is now. And very often the concept of chi uh, or ki, sometimes said in Japanese, is what you look at, what's the nature of the relationships, the nature of the flow, the nature of the system that it's moving through. Um, what, you, what you gain out of this is a non-dualistic view of nature. Don't see human beings as nature as two different or oppositional things. You might want to think in terms of the Chinese yin-yang symbol where the black teardrop has a little bit of white in it and the white teardrop is a little bit of black and together they make a whole. This is a different idea of opposites, complementary opposites. In the Western view, we tend to have uh, opposites that are clashing and absolutely different from each other. That's a more dualistic view. So the Buddhist uh, view of the universe offers a non-dualistic view. This also applies to sacred and secular. You don't see the term sacred so often because it's sort of all one thing. It's sacred and secular at the same time. But sacred usually refers to a, a creator or creator god or a div divinity. So that's emphasized less. Now, um, however, one of the central laws in Buddhism is the law of interdependence. And this is seen as a primary philosophical law in understanding. So if you think ecologically, this works very well. If you have any sense of ecological systems, just add into that the role of humans and human thought, and you have an, an a view of an interdependent universe. So what this means is a sense of all aspects of the universe, all human activity, all natural activity, as having multiple causes and conditions. No single individual cause and effect. Not such a linear view, but more of a systems view. So it becomes impossible to trace every single cause that formed something. And this is the source of a mystery understanding in Buddhism, and a sense of awe for the multiple causes, the generational causes, the evolutionary causes, the historical causes, the present time conditions that bring our behaviors, our systems, our worlds into existence. Now, a good metaphor for that is Indra's net. It has a limitation, but it's a great metaphor, so I'll share it with you. And this is uh, a Chinese from the Huayan school uh, metaphor. If you imagine a fishnet strung, say, hanging out to dry, then cross one at 90 degree angles, then throw a few more in on the diagonals, then go into vertical dimensions, and then let your imagination go wild like the Mahayanas love to do, and imagine an infinite number of these nets in the universe. And everywhere a thread crosses is a jewel, and that jewel has an infinite number of facets. It's kind of John Muir-like, you know. So every time you can imagine tugging on that net, the wind blowing, or you know somebody trying to cut it, the jewels are affected. They reflect fewer of the other jewels if they're tarnished or polluted. Now this is a beautiful metaphor, a very ecological systems metaphor that's uh, very popular among people looking at environment and Buddhism. But there's a single major flaw. So if you remember what I said when I first started talking about the dynamic universe, to really understand this system of nets, you would have to be jostling it and moving it and shaking it and the jewels would be growing and shrinking and giving birth to new jewels and it would be so dynamic you could never get a single snapshot that would cover it. So that's, uh, you if you add that footnote to the metaphor, then you've got a full picture. So in the other law in Buddhism is the law of karma and this 
popularly we think of bad and good karma, but the true interpretation is just simply cause and effect. Looking at how certain actions generate consequences, and if you look behind the actions, how were they informed. This is very helpful doing environmental analysis. If you add a Buddhist systems view to environmental analysis, you will compassionately then engage cultural causes, economic causes, historical causes, as well as ecological causes. The third thing I want to point out here are the sort of moral imperatives in Buddhism. There are precepts very similar to the commandments in the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, and the very first one that informs all the others is non-killing, non-harming. Uh, comes directly out of the Hindu tradition, ahimsa. So this is the primary thing you take vows for, um, and uh, you think always about how can you reduce suffering, that the world is so filled with suffering, just being born into it, just suffering old age and sickness and death, and the many ecological forces, hurricanes, floods, um, that to reduce suffering, to add calming, to cause as little harm as possible is the way to be a moral person. So of course you can see the environmental implications of that. That if you're reducing harm to a forest, to a garden, to um, a stream, to a mountainside, you would help it survive in a um, more intact form. So um, if we take these three things, the sense of the universe as the matrix and font of all creativity, and then this law of interdependence, we have a sense of what should the human role really be? There's very strong implications. So the view of the universe generates that. Now, I should say, though, in my closing two minutes, that this is not the perfect ecological religion. Much as it's um, drawn a lot of attention, particularly in a Judeo-Christian context, you know how you always think the grass is greener on the other side. So I need to tell you some of the drawbacks in Buddhism. So first of all, there are uh, the human realm is seen as just below the God realm by people who identify five to seven realms, and below the human realm is the animal realm. So from an interdependent systems view, you would think that animals, plants were all equal sentient beings, uh, but not in certain traditions. Now, the Zen people think mountains and rivers all of equal value, but when I argue with Robert Thurman and the Tibetan Buddhists, plants, no, they're not sentient beings, and we, we really argue about this. From their point of view, it's only animals. Um, now, not all Buddhists are vegetarians. Some of them eat meat. In fact, in the begging bowls that monks carry around, it's the villagers think it's a high honor to put meat in. But the Buddha said that right livelihood did not include slaughtering animals. So then who does the slaughtering? Some, somebody else is doing that dirty work. And there are revered trees in the temples that are big and mighty and magnificent, but it doesn't mean the forests are perfectly protected. So I wanted to leave you with a few of the kind of... Uh, uh, which is hypocrisies, uh, inconsistencies, not the perfect religion. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Wurtz, on the Christian tradition. I think I should start by saying that Christians will want to speak about the world as creation rather than environment. And I think that's a very important point to make because when we talk about environment, particularly in today's climate, uh, the temptation is to want to speak of the world around us as an amoral realm, as material bodies in motion. And, and this is, a, a, from a religious point of view, certainly a highly impoverished view of what the world is and what it signifies. Because when Christians talk about the world, they're talking about the world as creation. 
which is immediately to connect it to God as its source. And so to speak about the world as creation is to always see the world around you as the place of God's giftedness, but also the place of God's continuing care and sustenance. And this is a bit difficult to appreciate, especially in American Christianity, because we have long-standing disputes between creationists and evolutionists. And it's a squabble about the character of the world. And if you're into that debate and you see the, the, the pros and cons of both sides, you're tempted to think that the teaching of creation as it's taught by uh, Christian scripture and theology, for instance, that it's primarily a teaching about the origin of the world, how it all began. And so we get into disputes about how old the earth is. Is it more than 6,000 years old? And I think if you look at scripture, what you discover is that the teaching is really not that interested in the scientific mechanics of how the world began, but is much more interested in trying to understand the moral and spiritual character of the world. What does it mean for the world to be God's creation? Right, and this is a fundamentally different way of looking at what the world means. Now, a lot of the Christian teaching about creation uh, depends upon the Jewish context out of which it came. And, and we'll hear more about that uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but there are some very important distinctive elements that Christian faith brings to this. And these are things that I was not really encouraged to think about much as a youngster because, like many people, I thought that the creation was about when God made it a long, long time ago, and that was the end of it. But when you read the New Testament with uh, some attention to what the status of this world is, you discover that the world is said to be created by Jesus. Uh, you can look at the beginnings of John's gospel and discover how the world comes to be through the word, this same word that then becomes flesh in the incarnation. You can also look at some of the letters, the epistles, like Colossians, where we are told that all things on heaven and on earth came to be through him, through Jesus, through Jesus Christ, and that all things will be reconciled through him. Which means now that for Christians, the way to try to understand this creation is through the lens of this person, Jesus Christ. Right? So the Christian story, which begins obviously in the Garden of Eden, uh, circulates through Jesus from the beginning and continues uh, when we get to the book of Revelation, where again we are told not as the popular imagination often tells us that the whole world is going to be uh, consumed and destroyed. The picture that we get in Revelation is much more interesting because it understands that the creation is fundamentally good and that Christ does not come to destroy the creation, but rather to redeem it. And so we have this amazing vision in Revelation of the new heaven and the new earth, this place where now all of our relationships are so transformed so that in our living, we pattern the kind of healing and the kind of feeding and the reconciling that Jesus' own life came to embody, embody for us. So the, the teaching of creation from the Christian point of view, I want to argue, is a much richer teaching uh, than a lot of us have been taught within the tradition, uh, which is unfortunate. Now, when we talk about Christianity in this sort of way, we have to think, well, what is the human responsibility? 
And the traditional language has been that human beings are to be the stewards of God's creation. And this is language that has been uh, resuscitated more recently, but there are a number of images, again, that one could use here. Uh, depending on the tradition that you come out of, some Christians prefer to speak of our relationship to the world as one of a priestly role. And that role is to be understood this way. If God is the one who gives the world to us as gift, then the responsibility of human beings is to learn to offer the world back to God and to offer the world to each other. And for Christians, one of the primary places, one of the primary practices where this happens would be around the Lord's table at the Eucharist, where we are asked to eat the flesh and the blood of Jesus. And while we consume Jesus, Jesus consumes us so that we can then be food for the world around us. Uh, it's really quite striking the theological significance of this often uh, practice uh, right that Christians enjoy and participate in. That through our participation in the life of Christ, we are involved in the reconciling of the whole of creation. Now, like Dr. Kaza said, it would be nice to say that Christians have embraced this vision historically and have done no end of good. Uh, but we know that that's not the case because there are passages that have been uh, seized upon by Christians at varying times, most famously in Genesis 1, where human beings are told to subdue and dominate the world. And this is a story that has been used to uh, assert that human beings can do with the creation whatever they would like. And of course, this is a reading that depends upon a view of domination, which is relatively recent. Now, when you live in a modern technological world where we have immense levels of power to destroy and harm, what it means to subdue and dominate will be quite different than if you live, say, in an agricultural society like the context that would have informed much of the biblical writing. Uh, subduing and dominating does not mean having one's way with the world, but rather learning how to work with the world, right? how to work with God's creation. And then furthermore, Christians are told that however we think about domination or subduing, it will have to be patterned on the lordship of Jesus, who of course does not dominate over us in some ruthless or exploitive way, right? that Jesus' way is the way of service. And so perhaps what we need to start doing as Christians is reimagine in a theological, Christological way uh, what subduing the earth means if the model for our lordship will be Christ's own lordship. And then one other area, I think, where, where Christians have had some difficulty is Throughout the ages, there have been times where uh, Greek philosophical dualism has entered into Christian patterns of thinking. And in these dualistic ways of speaking, what you end up having is the elevation of spiritual life over material life, right? That it's the soul that Jesus comes to save and that bodies do not really matter. And I think the clearest indication uh, that this is not the way to think about the Christian teaching is to realize that Christians affirm not the immortality of the soul, right? certainly not the immortality of individual souls, but rather the resurrection of the body, which means that Christians, true to their own teaching about the incarnation, will want to insist right, that what we're talking about is the reconciliation 
of all bodies. Revelation again says that God has desired to live amongst mortals. It's not that we are to escape from the creation because it is somehow evil or wicked or bad, but that Christians need to learn how to repair and restore a creation that has been disfigured by human sinfulness. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Nazar from the Muslim tradition. I also am very happy to be able to be here. I've been discussing these matters for almost 50 years now, probably more than anyone sitting around in front of you uh, since I gave the, the Rockford Series lecture in Chicago, which for the first, in the 1960s, early 60s, which before people have even spoke about the environmental crisis, predicting that we would have an environmental crisis and that it was to be very closely allied to the spiritual malaise of humanity and not just bad engineering and bad economic policy. And I still hold that view and I'm glad that 40 some years later, this way of looking at things and to understand the significance of religion in this most important of all problems that faces us now increases from day to day. Uh, of course, like Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and later on Judaism, which I'll hear about, Islam is a vast tradition with many schools of thought. And whenever somebody says Islamic, like saying Hindu or Christian, you must understand what theological school, what interpretation you're referring to, obviously. Uh, with a few minutes given to me, I will just summarize very, very briefly some of the most salient features of Islam's understanding of the environment, uh, which are, almost all schools of Islamic thought share. I say almost because as in Christianity, as in Hinduism even, there are certain schools of thought which do not share the Vedantic view of non-duality or many other points that uh, Dr. Gulati referred to. Uh, first of all, uh, one of, God has 99 beautiful names according to the Quran. Um, God says, call him by these beautiful names. One of his names is the name Al-Muhit, which means environment. And God is ultimately the environment in the sense that it's he, who's his reality that surrounds us. And uh, when we talk about the natural environment, it is really an approximation uh, of the real environment, which is God. This is something that is very, very important to understand. And therefore the desecration of the natural environment, in a sense, is a forgetting of the role of God as the real environment that surrounds us. Islam, as Judaism and Christianity, of course, is based on the idea of creation also. Uh, in contrast, let's say, to Buddhism, which does not speak about cosmogenesis, about the origin of the cosmos. And according to Islamic view, uh, creation does not only mean that the world is not independent by itself, it does, has not been made by itself, that it does not stand on its own, but it also means that the source which has created the world has, must have left its mark upon the world, which means that creation is sacred. We do not believe that creation is divine. We believe only God is divine. Uh, only the divinity is divine. La ilaha illallah, that's what it means. There's no divinity but Allah. Only God is divine. But nature is sacred. Everything in nature is sacred. And in fact, this is so pervasive that there is no word for secular in Arabic or Persian or other Islamic languages. 
in my, I'm a Persian, originally I have to torture the Persian language to make up a word to create to secular. In Turkish, you have a very wonderful, very pure Turkish word for secularization called laicization. You can guess where that comes from. <laughs> the French word for secularism. I mean, in Arabic, there are all kinds of contorted words. It's quite significant. That is, even the categories of sacred and secular were not present in the Islamic world before modern times and the encounter with modern Western uh, cultures. Uh, the Quran, uh, the sacred scripture of Islam, refers to the phenomena of nature as ayah or sign, A-Y-A-H. Uh, everything that occurs in the world of nature, the clouds passing by, the streams, uh, the animals living, the plants growing, everything, the atoms banging against each other, these are ayat, signs of God. And the very same word is used for the verses of the Quran. It's extremely significant. That is, the revelation of God in the form of a sacred scripture, which for, like for Christian Jews being the Bible or the New Testament, uh, for us Muslims it's the Quran. Uh, Quran, as sometimes people mispronounce it. Uh, that revelation is the counterpart of God's primordial revelation, which is nature itself. The phenomena of nature contain the primordial revelation of God, except we can no longer read it. That's why we need the other revelation. Without that, the key is not given to us to read the primordial revelation. But it's very significant that the two words are the same. And classical Islamic thinkers, theologians and philosophers, developed this idea of the cosmic Quran, Al-Qur'an al-Taqwini, which is the counterpart to the written Qur'an, the book that you have in the Duke University Library, Al-Qur'an al-Tadwini. And the Qur'an itself, more than the Old and New Testament, refers all the times to nature in this way. The only sacred scripture which considers nature to be sacred, uh, like the Qur'an, is the Tao Te Ching. There's no other sacred scripture which refers to nature as often as the Quran does as part of the sacred universe. And in fact, there are many verses of the Quran in which God addresses non-human beings and swears by the pomegranate, by the fig tree, and says that the trees and the stars prostrate before God, and the very prostration, of course, refers to the act of five times of daily prayer that we perform towards Mecca in which we prostrate before God. It's, there's a remarkable co concordance and correspondence between the two. That is why Islam sees no basic distinction between human ethics and ethics towards nature. This, is, this dichotomy, which is new to Christianity, which did not exist always with such intensity that we find the last few centuries, uh, in Islam has never been totally accepted. We think, for example, it is immoral to uh, steal from our neighbor. But we don't think of anything of cutting down in a, a virgin forest and then going having some beer and watching a football game at night because nobody thinks they've done anything wrong. There's no immorality involved in the present-day perspective of the desecration of nature, destruction of nature. Our ethics, even if we are ethical, we try to be humanly ethical. Now, of course, many Christian theologians and Jewish theologians are writing against this. 
but Islam has always preserved this organic nexus between human ethics and the ethics of nature. And this is based on the idea that there's no such thing as natural law that St. Thomas Aquinas developed in that sense, which is so important for the development of Western science and the ideas of laws of nature that came out later on with Galileo Newton. In uh, Islam, it's very close to classical Judaism. We have the Sharia, the divine law, which is like the halakha in Orthodox Judaism. And uh, in uh, the divine law is not for Muslims who must live according to laws of God. It's also people of other religions. We talk about the divine law of the Jews, of the Christians, by which they must live. It's also the laws by which all creatures of God live. Each being in the world, each uh, species has its own laws. And also everything has its own rights, hukuk, and responsibilities. The word haq in Arabic means the truth. God is the absolute truth. Like Christ said, I am the way, the life, and the truth. Truth in that sense. And every, hukuk also means law. It also means duty. It also means right. Everything has its due, D-U-E. And the Muslim must be able to pay each thing its due. That is the most profound foundation for an, a sane philosophy of the environment. Unfortunately, of course, many people are not aware of this. Uh, 50 years ago, when I began to speak about these things, I was a lone voice in the Islamic world as I was in the Western world. I was attacked very seriously by Christian theologians and because what are you talking about? It's the great pride of Christianity to have called the Industrial Revolution and polluted the Thames River. Now nobody talks like that. Look at the text 50 years ago, see what they used to say. And we have to resuscitate this idea, but the Islamic view of the cosmos as participating in man's and woman's religious life is part and parcel of the Islamic worldview. Thank you very, thank you very much. And now, <laughs> we're delighted to welcome Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Wasco. Not very late, and thank God, not late, Rabbi Wasco. Right. Um, so in my tradition, and in fact in all our traditions, when we greet people, we actually greet people. And we expect to be greeted back. And I would like to begin that way. So, shalom. shalom. Salam. Salam. Peace. Peace. Shanti. Namaste. And I don't begin with those words only because, thank God, or thank the one, um, all those traditions happen to be sitting at this table and I hope in the room. Thank God this room all our traditions are seated in. I say it partly to ask you to remember, really deeply to remember, that there is no room that any of us sits in, even alone, let alone a room with all Jews or all Christians or all Muslims or whatever. There is no room in which it is not all our communities sitting. In this planet, in this century, there is no room anywhere on earth in which it is not all our community sitting. And I really implore us all to try to remember that. So sometimes it seems to me that all I would need to teach um, about or share about 
um, Jewish tradition about the earth is three words, or maybe even two words, and one word that ain't even a word. So I'll start with that one, right? Um, in Hebrew, one of the ancient, sacred, and most intimate names of God, in the Hebrew, Alavbet, which sounds like alphabet for good reason, is yud Hey, wo Hey. In the Western alphabet, that's Y-H-W-H. And some of you may have been taught in comparative religion courses at Duke or somewhere else that that's Yahweh. Well, it ain't. <laughs> and it ain't Yahovah either. It had no vowels. And for a little more than 2,000 years, a little before the rabbinic era and certainly all through it, Jews have been taught and I would say unfortunately taught Christians to substitute for that Y-H-W-H, which I'll come back to in itself for a moment, to substitute saying Adonai, which means Lord. And out of that in the Gospels came, in Greek, Kyrie, and came Dominus, and in English came Lord. The one thing, the Yud, hey, vov, hey, for sure did not mean was Lord. Why that euphemism or substitute or whatever you came, want to call it, came into practice, we can some other time, I guess, spend a lot of time thinking about. But what I want to do instead is to invite you to do something that happened within me. I didn't really plan it. Um, when I decided in the moment, actually, you know, Sinai can even happen on a college campus in the middle of a class at Swarthmore College that I was teaching to the extent possible with Martin Buber. He was dead, so, but I didn't want to make the class about him to make him into an it, right? Of all people, Martin Buber, the philosopher of I thou shouldn't be turned into an it. So we were having a conversation as much as possible with Buber and I realized that Buber, in talking about the words on the tablets at Sinai in a book called Moses, that's an extraordinary book, had skipped the first two words. One of them is the word, the kind of expansive word for I in Hebrew, Anochi. The entire universe says, Anochi, I. There is another word for I in Hebrew, Ani, which is more like ego in Latin. Um, the Anochi doesn't mean that I and you, I and you, I and each of us, I ain't there. It actually means each of us is there in the universe, I, that is speaking not only to us but within us. The second word is, if it's a word, Yudhe Vovhe. So I found myself saying, well, Professor Buber, my grandmother, when I was learning Hebrew at 11, said, after she taught me all the letters and all the words, and we came to a sentence that had Yudhe Vavhe in it, she said, that's Adonai. And I said, Grandmom, you just taught me what the letter is for the D sound and the N sound, and it's not there. That's crazy. She said, I know. Just do it. <laughs> so I welcome you, if you're willing to disobey my grandmother and 2,000 years worth of rabbis, to try pronouncing 
with no vowels. That was the point. It had no vowels. It wasn't Yahovah. It wasn't Yahweh. To try pronouncing with no vowels Y-H-W-H. Anybody say what happened for you? What? <laughs> That's all vowels. Yahovah. Anybody with no vowels? So I'll share what happened for me at that moment and ever since. And really has happened for a lot of people whom I've invited. When grammarians look at those four letters, they say they're very weird, actually. They're not quite vowels. They're not quite consonants. They're aspirates, which means they're breathings. That's what aspirate means. Aspiration, spiritus, spirituality, all mean breath. So that's the first thing. When I did this... The first thing that rushed into me after doing it was, now that makes sense. One, not the only one, but one of the real names of the real God shouldn't be in Hebrew or in Sanskrit or in Arabic or in Egyptian or in, you know, Rome, uh, Latin or Greek or English or whatever. It should be in all of them, shouldn't it? One of the real names? And the only thing that is, is just breathing. And the second thing that came to me is, it's not just human beings. Every life form on this planet breathes. And not in little bubbles, each one separate from all the others. We are only getting to breathe in here because somewhere there are trees and grasses that are breathing oxygen out for us to breathe in, and they only get to breathe because we breathe CO2 out for them to breathe in. So the interbreathing of all life as the name of God, for me, made a lot more sense than Lord, King, all that. I'm not saying for everybody, but for me, and as one of the metaphors, especially in our generation, to understand God by the interbreathing, the Latin origin word for that in English is the conspiracy, right? God, God, the great, great beyond conspiracy, the breathing together. Now, maybe it's no, I mean, actually, I found a text in the ancient tradition that seems to me like some rabbi got it, uh, and went in, and went into ecstasy and said, hey, we have to put it in the prayer book so nobody will ever forget it, that the breath of all life praises your name. Not you, notice, but your name. I figure, in parenthesis, because the breathing of all life is your name. So, of course, your name is, well, one of the great dangers of religion is once you put it in the prayer book, it's easy to forget, not easy to remember. 
but maybe it's no accident that the rediscovery of that, I do think it's truly ancient, but that the rediscovery of it comes when that interbreathing of all life, the interwovenness of oxygen and CO2 is exactly the greatest crisis in the history of the human race. And the greatest crisis in the history of the planet for 65 million years since the big meteor hit the place and killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of species. We are facing the moment when if you are willing to take seriously as one of the metaphors of God, the interbreathing of all life, that we are choking the interbreathing of all life, God's very name, to death. So I said there were two other words, and there would be a lot more, but, you know, who can do it? <laughs> two other words real quickly. The two words in Hebrew are Adam, which means human being, and Adamah, which means earth. The reason I dislike the word environment, though if you think of one of the names of God as being sort of not the environment. In English, environment means that's what's in the environs. It's out there somewhere close, but in the environs. Thinking of God as the all-encompassing reality, fine. Thinking of the environment as something separate, not fine. Adam, Adama is like this, right? You can't say Adam without hearing an echo of Adama. And you can't say Adama without hearing an echo of Adam. If in English, the ordinary word for human being in English were earthling, we would have it. But earthling is this woo-woo, you know, Star Trek word, unfortunately. Or if the ordinary word for earth in English were humus, which it is, but not the ordinary word. for It's a very specialized kind of earth. So for me, that's one of the deep teachings. And I could go on for sure for another 15 minutes, but I'm told I'm not supposed to. So I will stop and catch my breath. And mm, I will say one more thing. The commandment that says, don't take my name in vain, empty, empty-handed, empty-hearted, that's what in vain means, right? Think of it for a moment as if it meant every single breath you take is my name. Don't do it empty-headed, empty-hearted, empty spirited empty bodied every breath now that's the hardest of all the commandments everybody tells the 10th one don't covet don't envy that's the hard one uh, how can you tell people not to feel you know i think the hardest one but one we might at least put on the list for in that way for us to reach toward that every breath we breathe from a tree Every breath we breathe to a tree, every breath we put into the atmosphere out of the back of our automobile ought to be the name of God.
Um, well, question two. <laughs> um, second question, very briefly, just two minutes each. Um, what, uh, this is moving from being a teacher to being a learner. What do you feel coming from your tradition? You've either learned tonight or you've learned on other occasions from one or more other traditions. Very briefly, I'm going to be very, very strict on time now. First of all, I want to say that um, um, I did not completely say uh, how, what Hindus practice this philosophy, accepting, saying that, uh, you know, we, we um, uh, consider Earth as um, Mother Earth, and uh, whenever we want to start anything, any building, we first want to have a worship of the earth. Uh, I should have also said that uh, we, you know, we kind of, uh, it is a duty for every Hindu every day to feed a bird or an anim animal, to take care of the trees, and, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, especially uh, that um, not to take uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the flesh of uh, the animals. Now, uh, as to say that, uh, which are the negative things, you know, which, uh, about my religion is uh, that um, if, from whatever I said, there is nothing negative because we practice uh, earth and all other um, and the nature, natural objects as a part of uh, our daily, uh, the, uh, you know, kind of practice and uh, as if uh, they are our own. Uh, the only caveat I can make is that the philosophy that I have, I have underlined, which underlies all this thing, is not well understood in India. But let me tell you that religion is the soul of India. And if people were told the rationale behind what they do as religious rites and practices, it, it, they, would, uh, they would consciously try to maintain our solidarity with the non-human life. So at present, it is just the cultural tradition that has been passed on from one generation to another. In fact, majority of the Hindus don't even know why they greet, greet people uh, with the folded hands as namaste as I did uh, to you. I believe this is uh, true of every culture. And I'm not, I'm not sure how many people here know why do you shake hands when you meet people. If you, if you want to know the answer, I will tell you later. This is about what we've learned from each other? Or? I do want to say something about the positive negative. Rabbinic Judaism, out of necessity and also out of one stage of growing up, um, disconnected from the direct connection with the earth and used words, uh, words of prayer and words of Torah brilliantly to be able to carry into the world when they were disconnected from earth that they understood how to connect with. Judaism tried to continue itself as a kind of indigenous tradition. Our festivals are built around the earthy cycles, earth, moon, sun cycles of the land of Israel. You carry them around. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't work. I wrote a whole book about how they would work, really, even in North America. And the first Jewish review of it said, pagan, <laughs> to say that the festivals were earth-connected. Crazy. So the, the downside has been the rabbinic, I think, forced, but nevertheless real, disconnect. That reconnection is happening within the last 35 years. 
Echo Judaism reemerging, relearning from biblical tradition, enriching it, not throwing out rabbinic tradition, enriching it. And all I can say is it may be single sentences from Gandhi, from Martin Luther King, from the Buddha and the modern teachings of modern contemporary Buddhists, and from Professor Nasser himself, who I am just stunned, I must say, to be sitting on the same panel with. Um, and from my reading in the last two years from the Quran, um, I have, and of course the breath thing, I don't know if I would even have gotten there. Maybe, I think it was indigenous to the Yudhe the YHWH, but I'm not sure I would have gotten there without the Buddhist and Hindu, um, and to some extent Christian, uh, teachings about the breath as a sacred practice. Well, having already told you a few of the limitations of Buddhism, I want to tell you how uh, rich um, Buddhism in America is enriched by the other faith traditions, and particularly in the place where we need to build forces around environmental discussions. We, we really need each other. Um, my, I was actually raised Unitarian, so uh, now you might not think that's Christian, but at least we do read the Bible and sing hymns and so on. So I have had some exposure. But... <laughs> I did spend a lot of time in a Zen monastic retreat setting uh, in which, you know, we didn't talk about these things. So I've been very involved in Buddhist-Christian dialogue. And what I see is that the, the Judeo-Christian tradition is very powerful in its prophetic tradition, in the calling forth of social justice concerns. That The Buddhist tradition has this eonic view of time that doesn't really, it'll all kind of balance itself, work itself out. But the prophetic tradition adds some urgency. And I think that's a tremendous thing for us to learn from to address the inequities in the human systems and not just explain them as, well, you were reborn as an animal before. That's, that's too easy. I also think that uh, the, um, the Judeo-Christian traditions have invested a lot in the, in the arts. And as somebody who was raised in a musical family, who I loved singing masses, masses by you know, Bach, by Mozart, um, they were so moving, spine-tingling. They were spiritual experiences for me, that the, the spiritual arts, the celebration of the creation through music, through the visual arts, the performing arts, is a, a very rich and beautiful tradition, and I, I, I miss it in Buddhist practice. Also, I think we gain a lot in intermonastic dialogue and taking our monastic traditions out of the Catholic heritage and the Buddhist heritage to see what they've learned through uh, simpler living, through uh, deepening of practice, through silent retreat, through really contemplating... Um, these, uh, these truths in a, a kind of concentrated way. And I myself have found it to be a wonderful experience to take up some of our shared practices like prayer, to find a way for Buddhists and Christians to pray together, to meditate together, to offer blessings together, to you know do mitzvahs together and serve together. Um, and I've also particularly enjoyed really trying to understand the Protestant sense of community and that the coming together in church is to strengthen community, the stewardship of human community. And this is, these kinds of concepts bring a different depth to Buddhism, particularly practiced in the West. And, and they can all really be used in terms of environmental work. All right, this is difficult because there, there's so many things to talk about. So I, I will sort of group the two traditions together. I, I think one of the things that's been especially beneficial to me in thinking about Hinduism and Buddhism is the meditative and contemplative traditions that they have cultivated over centuries. And 
powerfully, I think, in Buddhism, we, we learn about uh, dukkha as a kind of suffering or out-of-joint character that characterizes so much of our world. And the question would be, how do we find the time, given the fast pace of our living, to even understand what that means and what effects uh, they are having in our world? And so uh, I think it's very important that we, we try to recover ways to find uh, an understanding and appreciation for uh, the suffering that is going on in the world, much of it the direct result of activities that we engage in. And this is where I think Gandhi is so helpful with his teaching of ahimsa, this sort of compassionate relationship to the world around you, which grows out of a meditative understanding of how we are so interdependently wound together and how we need each other. Uh, and then I think out of Jewish and also Islamic traditions, I think what is, is especially powerful is, is a better appreciation for the place of prayer and law in the living of a faith tradition. Uh, it seems to me that Jews and Muslims have done a better job of understanding about how we are called to live a very different kind of life than the sort of consumer technology-driven world that we're in. And that to do this, we need regular practices of prayer, but also a deeper understanding about how there are things that we are specifically called to do in the way of taking care of our habitats, uh, practicing economic justice, tithing, and things of that sort. Uh, let me just preface my few comments with the following statement. Uh, in the 18th century, when the Western domination over the Islamic world began, two different currents set in, not throughout the whole of the Islamic world, but much of the Islamic world. One was the spread of modernism itself, with which came brute force, the Napoleonic invasion of Egypt and the like, and therefore the desire on behalf of Muslims to be able to have the brute force to be able to respond to that brute force. And that led to a very large number of events into which I will not go. And the other was, is what is called the Salafia, that is a movement to return to what they thought was pure Islam at the beginning of Islamic history, from which came the Wahhabi movement in Saudi Arabia. A view that brushed aside the whole of the intellectual, spiritual dimensions of the Islamic religion in the name of a pure and simple law. Uh, now, both of these movements, although totally opposed to each other, were joined hands in several things, one of which was total indifference to the Islamic philosophy of nature. That is, they created a vacuum which allowed a great deal of technological transformation to take place in the Islamic world without anyone raising an eyebrow. Between 1960 and 1980, the greatest transfer of technology in human history took place in Saudi Arabia, from American companies primarily, but also some from Europe, while those very Saudis who were wearing long robes and didn't miss a pair by five minutes, but with total indifference, to the environmental consequences of what was taking place. The destruction of the city of Mecca, the most holy city of Islam, is environmentally speaking, is one of the greatest catastrophes you can possibly imagine. And pretty soon, Manhattan is going to be built in around Mecca, 80-story buildings uh, with the pre pretext, the modern technology always has the pretext of providing human co comfort, of course. Always with that pretext, massacring really uh, the most holy cities of Islam, all of which were built in old days on remarkable environmental principles. 
So the Islamic world faces a very important issue from in itself. People like myself, who speak from the sapiental tradition of the Islamic world, are opposed by, by many others. It's not that everybody, all the Muslims say, yes, yes, you're right in what you say. I've met, made confrontation from Egypt to Turkey to my own country, Iran, many other places, precisely because of those two movements which continue to be strong. It's in light of that that I think it's very important for Muslims to learn from, first of all, the experience of Judaism and Christianity in confronting these problems. It was from the West that a secularist view of nature and a technology which was based on absolute domination of the natural world and belittling of the value of any form of existence outside of the human arose after the Renaissance. You cannot evade the historical truth. And so Christian thought, later on Jewish thought, have had a lot of experience with dealing with issues which Muslims have not had that much experience to confront. And the critique of modern technology, from Eric Gill and Lewis Mumford to Wendell Berry and Schumacher and so many other Western writers, and his latter part of his life, Thomas Merton, was coming to Iran to see me when he died in Thailand of an accident because there was great interest in Sufism. The, these writers are extremely salient and important for an Islamic understanding of the environmental crisis, the resuscitation of its own spiritual tradition from the point of view of the study of nature. Finally, of the religions of the world, there are two groups of religions from which I think Muslims on a purely religious basis can learn a great deal. First of all, the idea of the Hindu-Buddhist dharma, not as law for human beings, but the dharma of existence, what certain schools of Hindu and Buddhist thought speak about. I was once walking with a very eminent uh, uh, lama in India, and a stream was flowing by us, and he said, don't you hear the voice of the dharma of the spring? Uh, the spring flowing by the, in the river, in a little rivulet. That, I think, is extremely significant, and even more than that is that which is absent from this forum, namely the view of the primal people, the primal religions. There are 300 million people left in the world who follow various primal religions, from the Australian Aborigines to the Hopis and the Navajos in New Mexico and Arizona. And their view of seeing not only particular things, but the whole of nature as breathing the breath of God, this beautiful statement that the rabbi made about the whole of existence, breathes the divine name. That's a central Sufi doctrine. They live it. They see it. When they see the moon, they see a divine manifestation directly. I think all of us, the children of Abraham, as well as all those from religions of India and others, we have a lot to learn from the primal people. And I hope the next time you have a conference like this, they will also be represented. Thank you. Um, and the last question. Um, but they're going to get a bit longer to answer this one. Um, the last question is, so what do we do? <laughs> Drawing on the religious traditions represented here and not represented here, uh, what can religions take into a search for our common future? minutes for this? Okay. Um, I think uh, the last time I answered, uh, that was the second question. So I will take these, I will use these five minutes to answer uh, the, the third one and the last one. Uh, 
<laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, the third one is that um, what other traditions uh, have uh, influenced uh, or other we have, uh, Hinduism has gotten insight uh, from. And uh, as regards this one, I would say that I can point out uh, two traditions in particular, and uh, that is uh, Buddhism and Jainism. Not many people here have heard the name of uh, religion, Jainism. That is also a religion which has, uh, unlike uh, Buddhism, is not a missionary religion. It has stayed only in India. Um, now, both of these, uh, 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 these originated in India, and their founders, Buddha and Mahavira, were almost contemporary and are revered throughout India by the Hindus. These traditions are not strictly theistic, but the Buddhist emphasis on creating harmony between humankind and nature, and Buddha's Eightfold Path, and Mahavira's emphasis on ahimsa or nonviolence in thought, word, and uh, action has enriched the Vedanta philosophy of oneness of the whole creation. In fact, the teachings of these two great sons of India have become part of the Hindu ideal. The last one, of course, is uh, that what we need to do. I believe this will require efforts both on the part of the Hindus as well as other faith traditions. The Hindus should stop having inferiority complex about their religion because the only religion they see in India is what the priests love to preach. On the other hand, other traditions, especially among the monotheistic traditions, should not dismiss Hinduism as idolatrous or polytheistic. Instead, they should try to learn Hinduism with utmost sympathy and with a positive attitude. Likewise, the Hindus should learn about other religions, not only Buddhism and Jainism, but also Christianity and Islam. The events like the one we are having here tonight should be held all over the country, not only to understand other traditions, but also to understand our own traditions better. Finally, I believe that since Hinduism has never been a proselytizing religion, it can play an important role in bringing all religious religions together, and with our combined efforts, we can put pressure on our governments in demanding policies that would be environmental friendly. Most importantly, this is the least that we can do for our future generations. Thank you. Go ahead. So, Thank God I won't have to do it in two words, but I'll start with two words. How to carry the tradition into action? Remember Pharaoh. That is, this is not just an issue of niceness. There are issues of power in the world that we are facing. I often use the imagery, um, the metaphor of addiction to oil and coal, in which I'm an addict too. I flew here to get here, right? And that's like the worst use of oil on the planet is flying. We have constructed a society in which all of us are addicted to oil and coal, and therefore to the destruction of the planet. That's what addiction is. It's using a substance that's very convenient, very pleasurable, even though you know it's killing you. And let's remember there are drug pushers and drug lords for other addictions, and there are for this one too. So when ExxonMobil says, hey, 
there ain't any such thing as global, what I call global scorching, global warming. I mean, you know, so basically pleasant to say global warming. How could that be so terrible? Global scorching, they say no such thing. And if there is, it's not because human beings are doing anything nasty. And if they are, it would cost too much to change it anyway. That's being a drug lord. That's being a drug pusher. That's using every ounce of money you got through ads and through buying politicians to make sure nobody gets in the way of you're selling the drug. Remember Pharaoh. We are coming into Passover last night in Washington. I joined with 300 other people in the 40th anniversary of the original Freedom Seder, which I had the chutzpah and whatever to write, to, to, write, to celebrate a Freedom Seder for the earth in which we noticed what you usually treat just as a sad sidelight of the, of the Seder, Passover Seder, the plagues, the ten plagues. You treat it as sad, you pour the wine out of your glass so you wouldn't celebrate the plagues. But the plagues were the result of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, stubbornness, and arrogance. They weren't just magic done by a super Pharaoh in the sky. They were karma. They were cause and effect. If you act to repress, oppress human beings, the earth will also screech and, 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 and groan. And so I, I would say the crucial thing is to remember to connect our own lives, not only to green, yes, 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 to green the campus, green the synagogues, green the churches, the mosques, and to remember that if we greened each one of those separate buildings, it still wouldn't change the social structure that is ruled by people who get profit and power out of doing this. And they are already drowning themselves in the Red Sea, if you notice, in the last six months. And that's one thing our tradition teaches, that overreaching does result in self-destruction. But it also teaches they take a lot of totally innocent people down with them. The Torah goes out of its way to say, even the servant girl who pushed the hardest work there was in Egypt, pushed the millstone, even her firstborn died. Like many of the people who are dying in drought-stricken Africa, the people who died in fires, unheard of fires in Australia. People are dying today because of the actions of those pharaohs, people who didn't do those actions. We need to reconstruct a society in which they are not in charge. Well, uh, let me take my Buddhist hat off for a minute and put my environmentalist hat on as uh, Director of Environmental Studies at UVM. Um, you know, for a long time, environmentalists have been pretty secular in their orientation. They've been driven by science and policy and been informed by that. And we've been waiting for the religions and the churches for 20, 30 years to join hands and be partners. 
um, here are some of the things that the religions have to offer. They have communities of followers. Um, anybody who's organizing looks out in a church and sees all those people that could join a cause. They have a beautiful source of wisdom teachings for inspiration, for help, for assistance to carry you through the, the hard moments of trying to deal with environmental issues. They have worldviews that guide people and provide a sta stable view, a, a way to find the role of human beings. They may not be the same worldview, but just having a worldview as a teaching uh, gives a, a human uh, soul or, re or reason a place to land. They have ethics. There are ethical guidelines in every one of the world's religious traditions about how human beings can behave and things will go better if they follow those guidelines. And they also have land, particularly the Catholics. They were really good at this in the early stages. And they have financial resources. And these are things that can be um, harnessed to accomplish environmental good. So I wanted to name those right off the top because these are tremendous um, resources that can be uh, used in an organized way to help uh, levy pressure, and we've seen this before when the evangelical Christians went to Congress and went up on the hill and said to all the congressional staffers and to the senators in the House, you can't kill the Endangered Species Act. Those are God's endangered species. The evangelicals made some of the greatest difference in preserving that legislation. So um, as a Buddhist, I'm not going to be a big player here. I have to go in as a small b Buddhist. I can't go up on the hill and say, um, Please, I want you to listen to me, I'm a Buddhist. That, it's just not going to work. But if I can uh, work with Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus and uh, indigenous peoples to bring a shared interfaith message, this will be very powerful. So um, where I'd like to see that go is uh, around um, energy issues. I think the Interfaith Power and Light has been a tremendous leader in this, and there's chapters all around the country now. Um, also in corporate investing, the Interfaith uh, Center on Corporate Responsibility, the ICCR, has been a leader in shareholder resolutions. And now this is moving down into college campuses. I serve on our Socially Responsible Investment Committee. And they can really draw on this ethics base to say, um, how are we really running our corporations? We can also work with climate change through the consumer end of that, our consumption. And here's where Buddhists, I think, do have a lot to offer. There are so many teachings on desire and greed and how it causes suffering. And my book, Hooked, was all about this, and it's sold more than the other books. So I think uh, learning about these addictions um, is a place we can make a, a contribution. So there's no shortage of things to do. And there are certainly many uh, resources for strength to get us through uh, what is not an easy situation. Uh, I think the sort of shaking in the rabbi's voice here tells you this is not something we're going to all fix overnight. It's going to take a lot of generations. It's going to take a lot of time. And I don't want us to be too innocent about what we face before us. I think we need to understand that the environmental crisis is not a crisis of the environment, but a, a crisis of culture. And what has happened in our culture has been a very neat compartmentalization of the world into a religious sphere and an economic sphere, and the two will not speak to each other. So that what people may do in, uh, in Shabbat or what they may do on a Sunday or whatever they may do has very little to do with economic practice. And so in a supposedly Christian country like America, we have the most destructive economy the world has ever known, which suggests a very serious disconnect uh, between what we think economically and what we think spiritually. 
And I think one of the great tasks ahead for us in all of the religious traditions represented here is for us to learn how to rethink economy so that we can address some of the issues that, that Rabbi Waska was talking about. How do we address an economy that is based upon extraction and destruction and power hoarding uh, such that this economy can be rethought in terms of faith traditions that talk about justice, that talk about health, that talk about wholeness. Uh, I think what is clear when you read about the, the faith traditions, these are not simply spiritual ventures that we enter into with our heads alone, uh, but grab us by our hearts, which include our bodies, so that we can work together for a better world. And so we're going to need to have a kind of theological reimagining of what economic life should be. And what that's going to require is the development of particular practices uh, in churches and in synagogues and wherever we might be so that we can think more seriously about how we spend our money, how we can spend our time in ways that will be much more productive of the kind of healing that we need. And here we have to sort of, again, fight a kind of economic determinism, especially now in a global culture where we're moving so very, very quickly and we're not being asked to think about where we're going. Right? We're talking continually about a growth economy, realizing that that's simply impossible. The growth has to stop at some point. So where are we going to find the opportunities? And I think faith traditions can play a major role in putting the questions to our wider culture about where we're going and how destructive it is and how we might reimagine our world differently. Let me say at the very beginning that I believe that without the change of our worldview, what is called paradigm now, made famous by an old colleague of mine at Harvard, Thomas Kuhn, uh, without a change of our worldview, every effort in, of resolving the environmental crisis, I believe, is just cosmetics. And it will not solve the problem. It fools us into thinking of resolving the problem, and sooner or later, we're all going to be destroyed by the catastrophe created by us. Let me put all my cards on the table. And we do not have many generations, unfortunately. I believe that it's a question of imminent danger, and humanity has to concentrate its energies on this issue. Otherwise, there will not be grandchildren around to do whatever they want to do. In such a situation, I believe that we do need, as I said, to reformulate a new paradigm, which is also an old paradigm. We cannot invent paradigms out of the hat. The only source from which we could draw a worldview which would be followed by many people, at least by most people on the surface of the earth, is from our religions. In the wisdom tradition of various religions, what I call tradition. And I believe that in the same way that there is a perennial philosophy, I'm a follower of the perennial philosophy, there's a wisdom that has always been and shall always be, there's also what you might call a cosmologia perennis, I've called that in Latin. That is a kind of perennial worldview, which deep down the various religions of the world share together. Of course, for example, my colleague's interpretation that Christian view of nature is Christocentric, of course, would exclude Islam and Judaism and everything else. But that can be worked out if it, made, it were to be made theocentric. All the religions could share in it. What we need with all the meetings that are going on throughout the world for ecumenical understanding among various religions of the world, is to devote more time to this issue of the environment that each religion must face, and together they could present 
a worldview which will have the most powerful uh, effect, I think, throughout the world. Let us not forget that except for Western Europe, where I would say jokingly, good coffee has taken the place of God and nobody goes to church anymore, and of course what remains of the communist world, in the rest of the world, many, many people listen to their religious leaders. In the Islamic world, what the Imam would say on Friday in the mosque in, in his sermon could determine how much sewage is thrown into the water of the area of the city of Cairo where the mosque is located. A tremendous impact. And rec until very recently, our religious leaders, cutting across all the different religions, dealt with all kinds of issues, quite rightly, of ethics, of being kind to your family, of loving God, and so forth, but very little to the question of the environment. And I think that this can be done. It can be done with ease, relatively, if we can simply attract the attention of the real leaders of these various communities. We already see the change in Christianity and Ju Judaism. Look at what was said 40 years ago with now, and is now occurring in Islam, and this is something that must be pushed. Without the help of religion, there will be no solution to the environmental crisis. And I believe that we must really understand what nature is. We must reject. I have a scientific background. That's why I can speak categorically. We cannot accept a secularistic, mechanistic view of the world for six days a week. And instead, on Sundays, the sun will become very pious and love God. And then we live the rest of the week as if God's will, his power, his presence, have no importance in the way we deal with the world around us. This has, must come to an end. And it's a very good opportunity now that the whole economic order is collapsing to try to create an order in which ethics, the environmental concern, and economic activity will be welded together into a single unity. And in this, the wisdom traditions of various religions have a premier role to play. And let me just conclude by saying that nature shall have the final word. Um, thank you. Now we've got some time for questions before. In a few moments' time, we're going to go into uh, different parts of the world and, and, and go and have a chance to speak with the individual speakers in smaller groups uh, down here and, and upstairs. But before we do that, uh, there's, a, there's a few moments for people to ask questions. So if you could wave your hand around in such a way that I can see you, uh, then somebody will come and find you with a microphone and be delighted to take your question. Who would like to start? Go ahead. Saturday night at 8.30, uh, we had this global event of everybody powering down for an hour, or many people doing that. Um, I heard about it through my people in India, my company in India. I heard about it from Australian people. Um, and then across our time zones in the U.S. Is, is, the, is the world starting to get the message here, coming together with ideas like this, that, that we, can, we can all work together? I'm, I'm going to take two or three questions all at one go so, so people can, on the panel can, can, uh, can, can respond to which parts they like. So who would like to go next? And I'll, I'll take two or three together. Well, we have a tradition in this country, separation of church and state. And yet, what I'm hearing from you is, and I feel very sympathetic to it, that 
there has to be a theological basis for activity, not just at the individual level, but at the corporate level and presumably at the political level. How do you reconcile that? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna take, take one more and then I'm gonna ask the panel if they'd like to respond. So who, who, would, like to, who would like to go next? If you could find your way to a microphone or a microphone find, it, find its way to you. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I went to a discussion of great, great decisions today. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And uh, this is at a senior care home of sorts. I mean, but it's the least level of care because I don't need all that much at this point. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that we discussed was genetic modification of foods and uh, I was recently privy to a tape on uh, what sort what was passed as research on genetic modification was uh, made into law in the United States without telling people what is genetically modified and I think that this is something that is a small part of what you've been talking about. I think we have to find another way of another focus in our lives beside, besides how this Dr. Nazar so nicely put it, a, a different lifestyle, you know, a, a more sensible one, maybe even you said it better, but bring back the Indians give them back their land or what we've still got that's not built on. But that, I think that's the answer or a change of our direction. Okay, thank you. I well, mean, I'm not, I meant to ask a question. Not sure, <laughs> well, <laughs> I think there was plenty of questions in there. Um, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna go along the panel and ask you to respond to maybe one of those and, and uh, uh, so there's the, there's the question about is the world getting the, getting the message? Uh, there's a question about the particular American context, one that I'm still learning about, uh, of uh, the relationship of church and state in America and how that applies to taking religion as a, as a corporate uh, exercise. And then a specific question about genetic modified foods. Uh, I'm going to start with Dr. Nazar from that direction. You can respond to whichever of those you'd like to. Uh, of course, I'm even less of an American than you are, but uh, I think people make a mistake between the question of separation of church and state and theology and belief in God. The American political system from the very first day was based on a particular theology, on a particular way of looking at the world, on a deistic view of God's relation to the world. And I think without theological and ethical consideration, which must be related to theological considerations, there's no possibility of action. People only talk about the separation of church and state. You say, sphere of democracy in Iraq. That has something to do with your worldview, with the theology, with the view, you understand what human being is, what freedom is. And this is going to come back now more and more. The idea of to totally separating all human activity except Sunday morning from religious considerations in the name of keeping separation of church and state ends us where we are now. Throughout American history, 
There was no problem in 1890 of people praying in schools. You look at the record. Uh, ethics was considered to the norm. That's what people, people didn't speak about it so much. The whole of the American Constitution is based on the idea of dealing with ethical Christian beings. And those things now have to be reasserted. There's no other choice. This cannot be an excuse any longer. Yeah, I'll speak to the genetic modified food issue, which I think is, is a case in point in which we have lost any ability to think about the world around us as the gift of God. When we think about food as a commodity that exists primarily on the material level, it then can be something that we can manipulate, something that we can take control over, something that we can patent, which we can then use for our own ends, which we can then profit from. And all of those would represent a kind of uh, rejection. Uh, I mean, rejection is not the right word because that would presume that you at least understand it's a gift of God and therefore to be rejected. But if we started our thinking about food as a gift of God, would we be inclined to go in the directions that we're doing uh, in the name of what, feeding the world or in the name of providing better crops? Uh, this is often a cover uh, for a way to take control of the food supply and profit from it. And, and what's so destructive about that is that it's the poor who are going to suffer the most from this. We don't know what kind of ecological damage will be the result of letting loose these genetically modified uh, foodstuffs that often pollinate with others. And it, it's, a, it's a major, major problem. And it shows you again about how our economy is driven not by a concern for, for a theological or ethical understanding of food, but simply an economic model which thinks in terms of profit and, and matter moving around. Sure. Uh, so first, a very short answer about the church-state question. Nothing that Martin Luther King, that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, that Al-Hajj Malik uh, Shabazz, otherwise known as Malcolm X, did threatened the First Amendment's prohibition on establishing a church or prohibiting the free exercise of religion. What they did was bring a profoundly religious commitment to changing public policy. So that history should just be kept in mind. On the other question, I have a kind of peculiar answer. Human beings have always genetically modified food. That is, the wheat we eat today was selected by farmers looking at what's the highest protein grain that you can get and breeding that grain until you got higher protein grain. Same thing with sheep and cows and goats and so on. If I had a second two words to say about how to act, beside remember Pharaoh, it would have been remember Shabbat. That is, remember time to rest and reflect. The problem, I would say, about genetic modification is nobody wants to stop to modify, to reflect. No, the modifying is gung-ho. The shepherds took centuries and millennia. And the, the wheat growers took centuries and millennia to modify the genetics of the plants they were dealing with. And they had a chance to get a deep sense of what it was doing to the whole world around them. The drive of modern commercial 
quasi-agriculture is to do it as fast as possible, make as much money off it as much as possible, as fast as possible, and whoever pauses. So the profound teaching of Shabbat, of the Sabbath, is cool it, <laughs> right? Just take a breath. I mean, the Shabbat Vayinafash says the Torah commandment, rest and catch your breath, which might be connected with the name of God. Rest and catch your breath. A society or a planet that doesn't make Shabbat in the profound sense, I don't mean the rules of 25 hours laid down by the halakha, but in profound sense, a, a whole culture, a whole society, a whole planet that doesn't make Shabbat for 200 years is going over the precipice. And we are. Um, just a couple of moments on the first question. Okay. I will just uh, first address the, the, the first question that uh, whether anyone is listening. Um, I, I think uh, if, um, as far as India is concerned, uh, in India the religion is a great force. And I think uh, I have lived here in this country for the last 45 years. I think the religion here also is a great force. If uh, this is the consensus, you know, that, uh, that uh, there, there is a special relationship between we humans and the rest of the environment. As, uh, not, as I pointed out, that you and I are not we, but you and I, including environment, are one. If that uh, is the consensus, and if, we, uh, if uh, uh, the religious organizations, the religions, all the, the religions put this thing before their government, uh, then I'm sure the leaders will listen. Uh, the leaders do what they think that their, what their religions tell them, what their religion is. Uh, I, I think, as I have seen here, how much religion has uh, um, uh, made an important difference in the election of uh, the last president, the previous president, and this president, and the previous presidents. So religion can make a lot of difference, provided we are all agreed to the, what uh, uh, common consensus we have arrived at today here. Um, thank you. Dr. Kelsa. Well, I feel a particular tenderness to the first question because I think we each go through periods of thinking it's hopeless and nobody's listening and nobody's getting it and we're going over the cliff. And then we go through periods of feeling more hope and like, oh, somebody is listening. This is getting better. Um, after 30, 40 years of doing environmental work and teaching environmental education, I still go through those periods. I haven't come to any big conclusion. And the marvelous thing is that it's so dynamic. And it so much depends, this would be a Buddhist view, of what you're looking at right then. If you're looking at the 25th email about the earth hour that we should turn off our lights, and it seems like everyone's listening. Um, and if you're reading the daily briefings, you know, on some other environmental news, you, you'll see it differently. So um, I, it's all happening. It's both unraveling and there's more hope. There are more people connected together in ways they've never been before through the internet. There are more very, very strong collaborations going on globally between countries. One of the things the last eight years of administration did was to galvanize partnerships outside the U.S. It was so important to see that Germany, that New Zealand, that Australia, that other people were still moving forward. The legislation was passing in Europe that was stalled here. So these partnerships are happening. 
Um, in Paul Hawkins' book, Blessed Earth, he describes the amazing abundance of uh, the proliferation of citizen uh, society environmental work. If you want an inspirational book or to his website, um, The Wiser Earth, you can see how much is going on. The young people today in the colleges see environmental work as only collaborative. It would never occur to them to try and figure this out alone. This is a kind of older, more individualistic way of seeing things. And we have to remember American society is known around the world for being hyper-individualistic. So all you have to do is just talk to somebody from another society and you'll have hope because they're not so burdened by that hyper-individualism. So we don't need to solve this all individually and I hope if there's kind of one message that's come out of this panel is that, that we all together believe that through working in a collaborative way and sharing um, different parts of our traditions, we'll all be stronger for that. And, and just that possibility carries hope. Well, thank you uh, very much, Dr. Kazer. Uh, uh, Emily's going to um, come and say something in a few moments' time, but just before <laughs> she does, uh, just stop, cut her off there. Um, I, I just want to uh, take uh, a leaf out of Dr. Wasco's book and on, on your behalf, choose three words, um, all of which are easy to pronounce. Um, and uh, the first word is hope. Uh, I want to thank our panelists tonight for giving us hope uh, in, a, in such a generous way not just from their own traditions, but uh, profoundly listening uh, to one another's traditions and drawing hope in the congruences and in, if I may say so, the conspiracy uh, of those uh, traditions. Uh, and the second word would be frustration, because I think if you're anything like me, and I'm sure you are, I'm sure you are really, uh, more than you realize, uh, if you're anything like me, you'd really have happily spent the whole evening with just one of these wonderful people. Uh, and, and, and you've been really cross with me when I've cut them all off, when they were just getting into their stride. Uh, it's, it's a tremendous honor. Uh, it's one of the greatest honors of the role that I have here at Duke is to be able to listen and to meet some of the most extraordinary people uh, in this country and, and far beyond. And tonight has been one of the, one of the moments like that. And I, 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 so there's a great deal of frustration there. But it, uh, a, a year ago, I sat here with members of three traditions and actually, I have to say, there was a lot more room on the platform in those days. But, uh, but I think we're so much more deeply enriched uh, by having broadened the conversation as we have tonight. So frustration there. But the third word is, is, is joy. This faith council has from the beginning been about creating conversations that wouldn't otherwise happen. Uh, and tonight has been one of those conversations. I'm very proud to be part of the faith council. I'm very grateful for those who support us. Uh, and I'm very grateful for the joy of simply being able to have conversations about the most important things in our lives with some people who offer, offer us some real wisdom. So thanks to each one of you. If you do hear, want to hear from one of these people, um, we're going to be splitting up into small groups if you wish to stay, and I'm going to give you directions to where, which speaker will be in which room in this building. Um, Dr. Nasser will stay down here and kind of congregate in that back corner. Dr. Kaza will be upstairs on the right, the door right next to the main entrance, which is the sanctuary. She'll be in there. 
Rabbi Waska will be in the library, which is right next to the sanctuary in that main hallway. Dr. Wurzba will be in the classroom in the hallway upstairs that is immediately on your left once you're at the top of the stairs. And Dr. Glady will be in the lounge, which is at the far end of the balcony right behind you. Thanks again for coming out tonight for all your support, and let's thank the panel one more time.